human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I was lucky to absorb some wisdom from the founder of Urban AI, Renee Cummings. She's a criminologist, criminal psychologist, and an AI ethicist and strategist. Renee's work and research across all these fields gives her a unique and compelling perspective on empathy and technology, as well as the human flaws and biases innate in its development. An optimist at heart, Renee is deeply committed to, to quote her, the power of the imagination and the extraordinary possibilities of AI, augmented intelligence, and collective intelligence. Settle in and get taken to school for episode three, How We Bring Empathy to AI with Renee Cummings. So, Renee, uh, I am so delighted to talk to you about many topics because you are fascinating um, and doing so much good work. And I thought that I would launch uh, how I've launched with other guests, which is asking you to give a brief sort of audio tour to where you're speaking from today, just to get people kind of in the sensory room with us. Okay, certainly. Well, today I'm speaking to you from Trinidad and Tobago. Amazing. Um, what happened is I came to Trinidad to do an assignment about three and a half months ago. And in the uh, first few days of me landing, uh, the government uh, decided to close its borders because of COVID-19. So I've not been able to get back home to New York yet. So um, I'm here and I'm having a fantastic time because I was born in Trinidad and Tobago. So I've been uh, self-quarantining to the max because I've been just locked away in my home in Trinidad by myself and uh, really doing just a lot of work on uh, the web. That sounds beautiful. I think a lot of people are having the same story right now of having returned to the places where they came from, uh, even if it wasn't expected. I am speaking to you from my childhood bedroom now, actually, uh, a place where I never thought that I would spend time again. So um, it seems uh, the pandemic has brought unexpected adventures like that. Definitely. Um, so I, I would love to ask you, I have so many questions for you. Um, but I guess I would like to start with, because this is a show about uh, empathy at work, empathy in our workplace, bringing authentic human connection into our workplace. Do you have uh, a story or a memory of a moment in any of your work experiences where empathy played uh, a role or uh, an experience in which you wish that empathy had been more present at work? Well, I think in all of my jobs, empathy plays a, a very unique role because I began uh, my professional career as a journalist and uh, empathy is critical to telling those stories because I was a feature writer. And then I became a substance abuse therapist. So again, empathy was leading the way in all of my interactions uh, with my client. And now as a criminologist and a criminal psychologist, much of my work when it comes to therapeutic jurisprudence 
is instructed by empathy because it is one of my uh, core philosophies on which I have built uh, my practice when it comes to working with individuals. And do you have um, uh, like specific ways in which, say, in your in your daily or weekly practice at work, where you are able to bring your humanity to the table in things like that? Because, uh, and I would love for you to speak more about uh, being a criminologist and a criminal psychologist, because um, I think that we can learn so much about human beings in general based on that small subset of humanity. Well, most definitely. Uh, for me, uh, humanity is who I am. This is how I was raised. This is the community in which I was raised and, and the family and um, the things that lifted me up in life. So um, just from, from childhood into my adult life, um, I've always been that empathetic person. I've always been that understanding person. I've always been that individual, I guess, who would tell my friends, um, you know, be, be kind to yourself. And it's something that I um, pretty much uh, follow throughout my life which is was being kind to myself for mm -hmm. the decisions I made, the indecisions I made, you know, the mistakes I may have made, and, and not beating myself up. But when I really started to study um, uh, psychology and psychotherapy, I, I think I became a lifelong student of Carl Rogers. And uh, Carl Rogers speaks about co congruence and uh, unconditional positive regard and uh, really having what we call accurate empathetic understanding. So those were the philosophies that grounded me. And I think uh, my effectiveness, my clients would say, would be my ability to always understand. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's never been about judgments. Mm -hmm. I don't deal in judgments, I deal in understanding. I deal in understanding people's circumstances and trying to always put myself in that place perspectives are really uh, big for me. I look at things at many perspectives as I can, and I really try to understand. And that could be a combination of empathy as well as, as curiosity. So those two, two things really guide me in always trying to understand where someone is coming from. What is a perspective? What is behind that behavior? And particularly as a criminologist and a criminal psychologist, when you're working with young people who, are, who have a proclivity to violence, who've been exposed to violence early in their lives, and who are behaving in a particular way, but yet you are seeing behind the violent behavior something that is yet so beautiful and so innocent, and someone who is a child, and really trying to reconcile. So I think everything that I do is driven by that whole approach of just bringing um, accurate, empathetic understanding to the situations that I'm at sea. That's beautiful. I love that. It, it sounds like you lead with really deep listening. Um, and uh, I feel like there, there, we can use so much more of that in the world. So thank you for that work. Um, thank you. I, I'm curious to know what you, what you personally have learned about, um, uh, especially because you are a, an artificial intelligence ethicist, which actually, let's start with that. Would you mind giving a brief uh, 
a brief description of, of what an AI ethicist is. Well, I think an AI ethicist is really someone who is committed to uh, ethics, but ethics within the context of not only doing the right thing, but doing the right thing for all. Um, someone who is committed to protecting the uh, public interest. Someone who is also committed to accountability, uh, transparency, uh, equity. Uh, these are the things that I am I'm committed to, as well as um, really trying to ensure that uh, something like artificial intelligence that has the potential to do such extraordinary good uh, does the good that it needs to do, but also I think my work is minimizing harm. So it's really about us as a society getting the maximum benefit that we can get out of this technology with the minimum amount of harm. Because we've always got to look at the uh, sociological impacts of technology, which is very, very critical. And as we move to use data, which is so powerful, to future-proof our societies, we have got to ensure that we don't use the data to create old uh, traditions that have not served us well. And what we have seen in many of the data sets would be those ugly patterns of bias and discrimination and systemic racism and, and the lack of visibility for certain vulnerable groups that are now being coded uh, within the context of artificial intelligence. So my work as an ethicist is to also ensure that diversity, equity, and inclusion are baked into any algorithmic program uh, that's being designed and to ensure at every stage of the life cycle from development, uh, design development to deployment, that we do have a respect for uh, inclusive technology, for diverse and principled technology, and that we celebrate diversity in everything that we do. Absolutely. So well said. I love that. And I love because it, it, it coming from the outside, to see a person who is a specialist, both in criminology and in AI, it makes me ask, what is the, what is the connection for you? How, how is it that you came to pursue both of these paths? Does one inform the other? Uh, definitely. So how did I get into AI? Because of criminal justice. Because some of the big mistakes in AI, the big early mistakes, were made within the context of the criminal justice system. So there were these risk assessment tools that were designed to predict sentencing, future offending. And because of the data that was being used, uh, was so much... Um, was historically biased and discriminatory data, particularly against black and brown people. Many of the decisions from those risk assessment tools, uh, algorithmic decision-making systems, really overestimated the recidivism rates of black and brown people. So what happened there? You had a tool that really was not doing what it was supposed to do. It was created for uh, expediency, but it was undermining um, equity and it was frustrating due process. So I am committed to due process and duty of care. And this is where I came from a position of due diligence and data vigilance and raising consciousness when it comes to data to let other you know, data develop, I mean, developers and, and data scientists understand that those subconscious biases seep into the design process. And we may not be conscious of it, so the ethical uh, risks may be intentional, but for certain groups and communities, 
those faux pas, you know, those mistakes do feel very intentional. So what we've been seeing particularly with AI would be things like uh, facial recognition, again, very controversial, and of course, discriminatory in the ways in which it, it profiles uh, black and brown people. Other digital profiling tools, things like predictive policing, all of these are from you know, criminal justice. And uh, there's been a huge investment in, in tools uh, to surveil communities, to predict crime. And what we're seeing is many of these tools are, are really biased. Uh, you know, they, they really uh, are not serving the communities uh, with respect and, and with honesty. And um, of course, it comes back to empathy when it comes to the design, when it comes to that level of honesty, when it comes to, um, you know, who are the designers? How diverse are they? Do they have a multicultural perspective? Who's at the table when these technologies are being designed? Are we using our privilege? Can we step out of our privilege and ensure that our designs are more inclusive? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Yes, I see how they, they relate to each other. It's, it's so dovetailed how they, how they relate to each other and how you can see, you can actually see the human flaws uh, in AI, even though AI itself, artificial intelligence by name, is not human. It's got the human flaws and the biases and the, the unconscious beliefs baked into it. Um, and that happened so fast that it sounds like it wasn't really able to be done in a responsible way. And what you are doing is riding the ship in a way. Um, um, most definitely. And I think it, it comes back to that level of consciousness. Because remember, artificial intelligence is being designed by a human. Mm -hmm. And in the design process, very deliberate steps are made because that's how you build an algorithm by giving it very deliberate instructions. So it comes back to who is the individual creating the tools for this technology? And what is the level of consciousness that individual is bringing to the table? And what about the organization itself that's really hiring these developers and, and data scientists? You know, How committed are they to diversity and equity and inclusion? And whether or not the commitment is just window dressing, but when it comes to the design table, what we are seeing is privilege mm -hmm. instead of full participation of the many groups who are involved in society and that lack of public and stakeholder engagement. And, and this is where I say sometimes design needs to be more compassionate and more empathetic uh, and, and more humanistic. And I think if we put those things into the mix, into the menu for the algorithms, we can get something that better serves all of us instead of something that harms a great percentage of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you, uh, have you had the opportunity um, in your career to, to get into some of these rooms where programs are being designed? Uh, and if not, is that something that you're interested in doing? Because it sounds like, I, I, w I wish that you could say everything you just said to me, to everyone who's designing these programs. Uh, are they open to, to hearing ideas like this? Well, I think at this moment, the world is open to hearing ideas like this. 
because ideas like this is what has gotten us to this place where we are right now. The protest action, the, the levels of dissatisfaction, calls to defund the police, to reimagine policing, uh, social justice. I think we're at that position right now. And what we're seeing are a lot of the, the big tech companies and companies across the board, corporate America, are really looking at its position when it comes to social justice and when it comes to racial justice. So I think the conversation has been reignited. The sad thing is that over the many years, many decades, I think corporate American big tech have paid billions of dollars to do things like implicit bias training right. and cultural and insensitivity training and look at things like anti-discrimination laws and policies. But I think it may have been just a lot of lip service because, I mean, beyond the workshop or beyond the uh, conference, what we found is that people would just default back to what they, what they have known. So I think what is required at this stage would be critical changes, changes at the leadership level of these organizations. And yes, I have had some opportunity. Of course, I'm looking for other opportunities. Um, this is an opportunity right here that you're providing me to, to share with a, a public about some of the work that I'm doing. But I think it's beyond the conversation. And you brought something up at the beginning, humanity. And I think if humanity guides us, then we must think about all of the people and not just ourselves. So I think much of design comes from a place of, of selfishness instead of a place of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, because it, because it's been uh, profit driven so often because of, you know, the, the late stage of capitalism that we've been living in. And that's why I think this moment is such an interesting fulcrum because it's like, we have the opportunity, it's so clear, we have the opportunity to make a choice now while business as usual has been paused. And so I wonder what you think about, um, based on, based on you know, what you know and your instincts, what you think about remote work, like now that so many people from corporate America are working remotely, do you think that is going to change the nature of um, of how humanly or empathetically we work on things like AI or on, or on anything? Do you think that being out of office buildings will do something to the way that we work and connect? I think it's definitely going to have an impact. I think it is going to make uh, employers definitely more empathetic because not only are people working from home, they are working with their family next to them. They're working with their children in the same space. And now the employees, the teams and the managers and the, the VPs, they're all going through the same experiences. So I think it's definitely going to make us more empathetic. I think the challenge will be for those who are leading the teams to really look at their communication skills, because I think the challenge becomes how do we communicate using, uh, you know, when we combine virtual and um, really the office at the same time. So I think for many people, uh, connecting with teams and connecting with individuals via technology is going to require some additional training skills 
when it comes to communications, when it comes to coaching, when it comes to leadership, leading via Zoom, or, you know, it, it really is, is something different. And I think in the process of us upskilling uh, when it comes to communication, I think we will also be upskilling on compassion and empathy. Also because uh, this pandemic has created a uh, a parallel pandemic of, of mental health and mental health challenges. Absolutely. And not everyone has been able to make the transition as smoothly as required. And when you add the uh, financial pandemic to that as well, there are many challenges in one family. So you may have one partner who's working, one who may have lost his or her job. Or, you know, if you have an extended family, there may be someone in there who's dealing with issues of depression, isolation. We've just, uh, we, we continue to, to, to negotiate this, this pandemic. And many of us have lost loved ones uh, who we have not been able to grieve mm -hmm. um, their passing. So there's still a lot of pain and a lot of trauma and you know, self-isolation has created anxiety. So there are lots of things that we are dealing with and we're going to have to deal with work and picking things up and, and pushing ourselves up again. So I think that situation in itself is definitely calling now for more empathy and more understanding and more compassion. And if anything, it makes us look at ourselves look at humanity because I think for the last four months we got a good look at humanity and we're still looking at it and yeah. we're seeing the things that we're good at and they're seeing the things that we are not so good at yeah. and we, we've got to think about our neighbors now and we've got to think about each other because just wearing a mask or deciding not to wear a mask is now uh, you know a, a so not only a social responsibility it's almost a, a matter of national security in, yes. in some countries if you do it so lots of things are going to make us rethink and reimagine, but I think in all of that, the thing that's going to hold us together is our humanity. Yes, 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 and I completely, everything you're saying about mental health uh, rings true with things that I've been thinking about and talking to friends and colleagues about how that is a pandemic that we have yet to even deal with, especially because you know, trauma when it's unprocessed stores itself somewhere in the body. It doesn't just go away. Definitely. And uh, I, I wonder if you have um, advice or, or tools that, that you recommend or that have worked well for you to avoid uh, the natural burnout that comes with, with being in this like sustained heightened place. I think you've just have got to give yourself a time out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what a lot of people uh, have not been doing. You've got to just take some time to yourself. There are times when you've just got to take the news off, take the, you know, your phone off, don't log into, so just give your, your, your brain some time to relax because I think uh, we're overstimulated, you know, we, and then we have watched so much tragedy in the news and then we keep going into these cycles so we went from watching everything about COVID-19 and watching those bodies being put into those portable refrigerators oh. and now we went into uh, violence on the streets and and you know we're now dealing with police brutality I mean the world watched a man being murdered on you know eight minutes 46 seconds I think of of us watching that and you know although we have in some ways become desensitized to certain things you know these things still do have an impact on us and who we are 
And um, really, we've got to just some, take some time for ourselves. Uh, we've got to find other ways to, to nourish and, and refresh our mind. And we've just got to find other things to feed our soul. You know, I'm not saying do it forever. But what I'm saying is, is give yourself some time uh, just to do nothing, maybe. Maybe a few minutes of, of just absolutely doing nothing and trying to think about nothing and then starting back because it's a lot. It's a lot that we are carrying mentally. And it's only sometimes when we take a pause do we realize how much we've been carrying? Absolutely. Yeah, I actually got to sit in a hammock for several minutes yesterday and completely zone out. I, I, I lost track of time and I forgot what that felt like to lose track of time. Um, but yeah, I, um, I appreciate all of that. And I think it's so interesting that in the past several years where topics like uh, meditation and wellness and, uh, you know, really the effects of a lot of uh, Eastern traditions that have been brought into the Western world have been dis discussed so much that now is the time when they can actually be put to use. You know, if you're a person who claims to, to meditate, you know, this is the time when that tool is for. Um, but I appreciate, I appreciate your reminder very much because I think we, we're so programmed to be productive um, that it's hard to stop. It's hard to press the off button. But we've got to. There are times that we've just got to. I mean, I'm not saying press it forever or just leave it pressed, right? I know people have got things to do and, and depending on how many people are in your home, it depends on how much time you can, you can take for yourself. But this is, is also a great opportunity to just, you know, look, look at yourself and, and look at the things that you want to achieve and look at the things you have achieved. And, and really, it's, it, it's about coming up with, with, with a, a new strategy because we all know the world has changed. We're never going back to the world we knew pre-COVID-19. And you can't enter a new normal or a new reality with the old you. So you've got to make some adjustments in real time. And I think if anything, that's what we need to be looking at. You know, what are the protective factors that we have that are lifting us up? What are some of the risks that we face beyond COVID, uh, beyond healthcare, beyond uh, mental health, beyond uh, financial health, you know, our families, our children. We, we've really got to, and I think this is also a time where you've got to talk to, to other people to get that additional strength from, 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 from the people around us. Because I think, because of the fact that we've not been able to communicate how we used to communicate. I think if it's any time, this time is, is when people are realizing how much people mean to them. So I think we, we need to have some group conversations and really give each other the strength that we need to help us reimagine ourselves as we reimagine the world um, that we are now stepping into. Absolutely. Yes, a hundred percent. And I, I do, I find that the, the more I am isolated from other people, the more I'm really craving being in connection with other people, which is something that I think AI uh, can help with. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that ways in which um, AI, if used well, can help us be better humans, more human and better humans. I think definitely uh, we're going to see uh, how AI helps us navigate 
uh, this pandemic. We're going to see AI, of course, in healthcare, in uh, clinical care, in uh, everything, in, in from sport to education to contact less interfaces, something that's going to be required more and more because I think because of COVID-19, no one is going to want to touch anything again. Right. But I think it's it's just going to make us more creative. But I think, too, that people are going to crave that old school kind of connection, you know, where we, we want to sit with each other, we want to talk to each other, we want to have that, uh, we want to be close uh, with each other. But I think what AI is going to give us would definitely be uh, more virtual experiences that feel like we're together. But somehow, I think as human beings, it, it's going to serve a purpose but we are going to want more than that. So while AI, because of its, its, its power and its pervasiveness and its potential is really going to uh, help us do things now like remote work and like uh, telemedicine, you know, and really make us more efficient and more effective and really sort of hold us together. I don't think AI will be able to deliver on the connectivity and the caring and the, the hugging and the kissing and those things that <laughs> make us who we are. AI can't can do that for us, but it can certainly with speed help us track you know, this pandemic, help us prepare for future pandemics, protect us in that way. But definitely um, human connection is only something another human could do with another human. Uh, yes. And you know what, it really, it really fills my heart to hear you say that. I think because I, I have to admit, I have a, um, I have a real sentimentality about analog living, about, um, and, and a fear about AI, I think because my inner child fears that it will take away the best parts of being human, like the, like the hugging, like the connecting in person. And so I love to hear somebody like you who works so closely with it um, still be so um, appreciative of the human aspects of humanity. Does that make sense? It does. And, and as I said, you know, AI is a, a brilliant piece of technology. It has the potential to change this world in extraordinary ways, to make us more effective, to make us more efficient, if done well. It really could be, uh, you know, the, it, it really will be the, the ultimate game changer for this world in which we live when it comes to the ways in which we work, the ways in which we, uh, of the quality of the healthcare that, that we get, the quality of the uh, education that we're able to get as well, you know, creating uh, virtual classrooms to, you know, just do things that, that uh, to really stretch the imagination. I believe all of that, but I do believe that there are some things that we feel as humans that AI will never be able to replicate. What you feel like when someone gives you a hug, what you feel like when someone holds your hand, or if you're feeling down and someone smiles at you, or, or just that moment of intimacy, AI is not going to be able to create that in the ways in which we know it. If indeed it's someone who was born at the time the technology is born and that is all they know, they may have the concept that this is what is, it is. But if you know, you know, if you, you, you were there, uh, you know, as we are, when, and, and understand how these things feel, I don't think AI is ever going to replace that. But what I do think that people need to do is demystify data 
And that's one of the things that I do because I think there is this fear of, of AI and this fear of data and the fear that uh, somehow this technology is coming to take this world over, but it's not because it's a technology that definitely needs human input to create it and to use it, augmented intelligence. We will see much more of it when it comes to decision-making, which is our collective intelligence. But the one thing we will never see would be the end of human intervention and in a human-centered approach to this technology. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying. <laughs> um, I uh, would love to know, this is a little bit out of left field, but just speaking about humanity, um, what is, uh, because the sense of smell, this is very random, I'm sorry, I just thought of this, but because the sense of smell is our most um, prehistoric, it was the first sense that formed, um, do you have a smell that when you smell it, it, it brings you comfort and joy? Hmm. Well, there are many. There are many. Uh, there are many, of course, fragrances uh, from the foods of my childhood. I definitely do that. And of course, I, I think uh, when it comes to fragrances, I like uh, things that are woody. So I would always like things like patchouli and sandalwood and uh, frankincense and uh, those types of woody scents uh, really make me feel comfortable and make me feel calm. Uh, there is one scent that I cannot uh, <laughs> inhale. That is anything with vanilla in it. I don't know why. <laughs> everyone's got, everyone's got. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me, it brings on a migraine. Um, yes, yeah, so I can't do that. But anything that is woody, and of course, the uh, seasonings and the uh, spices of my childhood uh, coming from Trinidad and Tobago, where we are very diverse and where we have a really uh, eclectic mix of, of African and um, Asian and uh, spices and, of course, indigenous spices. So we have Africans, uh, persons from India, people from China, uh, from Syria, from Lebanon. We really have all the spices here. And wow. on some days, we put all of it in a pot. Uh, <laughs> and, and then we have what we call our Kalaloo, which is um, world famous. So um, yeah, so I'm very much into to fragrances and to spices and to smells and as I said, you know, it, it really uh it really gives me that that extra energy that I need at, at certain times. And of course, uh yeah. I love that. I love that. I love um knowing that somebody who is working so passionately about technology is so uh hooked into that uh that very human sense. I don't know. You're I feel like you're curing my fear of technology just in this conversation. And I well, that's good because a lot of people tell me that. I think my role has always been to demystify things because uh, fear uh, really stops us from enjoying and experiencing and getting uh, using things that could really empower us. For me, technology is about empowering the individual. I want you to know this is the technology. This is how it could work for you. This is what it promises. This is what it's going to deliver. But yes, these are the dangers and this is how you prepare yourself. So I always, I also have a, a crisis management uh, background. So I think when it comes to detecting and mitigating risks um, is something that I've always an, an area I've always worked in. And now I do that with AI. And my thing is about preparing people. It's mm -hmm. about educating people. You're using technology. 
you've got to be an educated consumer, right? Just as how we were using uh, materials and then we realized we needed to use organic. Uh, we wanted to be more organic. So my approach is I want you to have a very organic approach to data. That's yes. what I want you to have, right? An organic <laughs> approach to data. That's and that's good. what I, I'm really trying to inspire in people. I want you to be educated consumers of data. Use the things that are going to empower you and lift you and your families and your communities up and be very cautious of the things that are going to present a challenge. And if you do see something that is risky when it comes to AI or data, know what you need to use to mitigate those risks or know what you need to just block that out of coming into your space. And that's how we, we've got to live with each other. And that's how we live with technology. Amen. Amen. Do you, um, do you have uh, some small, what, what is your small piece of advice that you would have for people in their daily lives to inject empathy somewhere like what do you think is the easiest little tool that people could use in their daily lives that would make other people's lives better be kind that's it just be yep. kind good agreed agreed um well renee this has been wildly jam-packed and informative and i appreciate it so much Thank uh you. would you like to uh tell our listeners um, where they can find you or what's coming up for you? Certainly. Uh, they could always find me on any uh, social media platform from Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I am very available. <laughs> I am always uh, willing to have a conversation. I am always willing to play a mentorship role if I can. And I'm always willing to listen to uh, whatever it is that you would like to to say and if I could make a contribution or if I can add just a little word or two to make things better for you, I will certainly do that. And um, just wanting to thank you, of course, for this wonderful experience and this great conversation. And uh, I do believe the conversations change the world. And I believe that conversations are critical. They're absolutely critical in helping us create the individuals that we want to be. Totally agreed. This has been a pleasure and an honor. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Take care. Bye-bye. You. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 3 of What's Betwixt Us, Stories of Working While Human. To learn more about the extraordinary work of Renee Cummings, find her on LinkedIn for the tip of the iceberg. From there, you can make a deeper dive into her passionate activism, prolific philanthropy, and groundbreaking thought leadership. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at Z-A-N-I-E dot A-P-P. Human first, everything else after. Human first, everything else after.